Good morning, Fairfax. Hello, so good to be with all of you. If we have not had the chance to meet before, my name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at the church. And for those of you joining us online, welcome in, glad to have you here. Hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving for you know whatever that looks like for you guys. Um, I was hanging out with my wife's family here in Manassas, go Manassas. And um, you know, my wife loves the Thanksgiving Day Parade, had that on for sure. And then you know, whatever, you know what always follows that that I always forget is like the dog show. And I never realized how much work goes into that and all that stuff, but like Winston, I mean, he won it all. So I don't know if you guys saw that, but anyway, you guys are like, okay, well, did not see that. Winston the French Bulldog, so if you care, yeah, okay, great. You're like, we don't. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Well, uh, guys, um, so excited to be bringing the message here. Uh, it's, we're wrapping up our Kings and Prophets series. And in this series, we've been looking at First Samuel. And over the past couple of months, since the beginning of October, we've been in this series. And so we've had the chance to really dig into the richness of this book. Some incredible, some incredible character studies. David and Saul's stories, uh, as we looked at them, have been told very realistically. Samuel, who's narrating, doesn't try to hide their weaknesses and their flaws. And today we're going to look at the end of 1 Samuel and then also at the beginning of 2 Samuel to kind of tie that all together. And we're going to really um, kind of reflect back and look at these two um, arcs as they're happening. And so we have Saul, who is the first king of Israel, and we'll reflect back a little bit on his kind of journey. But um, when we're, where we're picking up today, he's like downward spiraling towards the end of his story. And at the same time, we have David's rise, okay? And so these two arcs are contrasting to one another. And so we're going to look at David and Saul and um, with Saul, there, he has some major character flaws that eventually lead him away from God and uh, lead him to this tragic ending. And those are contrasted with David, who also has flaws. But as chapter 13 says, David was a man after God's heart. The condition of Saul's heart and the condition of David's heart um, determined how they stewarded the power and influence that God had entrusted them with. And like these leaders, we all have power and influence that has been given to us by God to steward. And uh, like Rod had talked about last week, um, very briefly in his message, we looked back at Genesis. We're talking about like, well, who's anointed? Well, we all are anointed that God has uh, created us in his image, has called us to partner with him to, as Genesis 3 says, to rule and bring order to creation. And so God has created us to steward power. But where things go wrong is when we try to steward the power that God's given us in our own way and not doing it um, in a surrender position to God. And so whether we're in leadership roles in our workplaces or certainly in the home, if you're a parent, you are a leader um, in relationships, any place that we have influence of any kind, you are leading in some capacity. You have influence over people. And who we are determines how we will steward the power that God has given us. Power reveals what is inside a person and amplifies it for better or for worse. 
And as we contrast these two leaders, we'll see the pitfalls that brought Saul on this downward spiral. And we challenge to be mindful of those in our lives to take a look at what um, ways that we might identify with some of those pitfalls that Saul struggled with. And then also see the characteristics of David that we see in Jesus that God has called us to imitate. And so um, we're gonna start today in chapter 29 of 1 Samuel. But before we read, uh, just some context to gonna give you a framework for jumping into this specific chapter. And so back in chapter 16, we're gonna start back with uh, David and Goliath. Okay, so Saul is king, Israelite army face off against the Philistine army. Philistines have this champion, Goliath, he's huge. And no one wants to challenge him from Israel to kind of settle the battle. And so Goliath is taunting and not even Saul or any soldier will dare challenge Goliath. But David, this humble shepherd boy, steps up with his slingshot and defeats Goliath against all odds. David is celebrated. And remember, if you were here or if you've read this before, but um, we're reviewing it, so in case you didn't. But remember when they sang the songs. So David defeated Goliath and they sang these songs that said, you know, King Saul, he conquers by the thousands. But then in the same song, they say, but David conquers by the tens of thousands. And so he conquers 10 times as many, you know. And so Saul heard this and was furious And he um, sought after David out of jealousy and anger to try to um, kill David. He saw David as a threat. And so, you know, David then flees because Saul's trying to kill him. And David has then been on the run from his home ever since. And um, what we saw last week was David has had two chances to get revenge on Saul, like two served on a platter, you know, prime chances to take his payback and revenge against all that Saul has done to him. And David both times extends grace, both times forgives and chooses to love Saul, his enemy. And so um, that's what we saw. We, We looked at one of those instances last week. And Now, we're kind of almost to chapter 29. Chapter 27, right after what we looked at last week. So, David forgives Saul, but he doesn't trust Saul. And here's what he says in chapter 27. One of these days, I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. So what's the best thing I can do? Escape to the land of the Philistines. They're enemies. And then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. So David has this bright idea to go hide amongst the enemies. And he's like, Saul's not gonna find me there. So David meets up with the king of the Philistines who are the Israelites' enemies. And the uh, king of the Philistines gives David a town to be in and stay with his soldiers. And so David stays in the land of Philistines for 16 months. You're like, whoa, what? And, and this, this is like a, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation, okay? So um, now we're gonna read, starting in chapter 29. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek in Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. 
Okay, so the Philistines are on the move to attack Saul and the Israelites. And guess who is with them? David and his 600 men are bringing up the rear. And now you're like, whoa, this is all backwards. What's going on? And not only that, like what it meant to be at the back of the army was actually like a compliment. So David and his soldiers were trusted enough to be near the king. So the king's in the back of the army and David and his soldiers are there also. And so they're in this trusted like bodyguard like position with the Philistines. And so, you know, this is crazy, right? We've got David who's, who took down Goliath, who is now on the Philistine side. And you might be thinking, well, um, is this a Darth Vader situation? You know, did they take the best of the Israelites and convert them to the dark side? You know, Darth David or that kind of, Darth David, okay, that kind of works. Okay, um, new Star Wars show coming out. Okay, so um, no, no, David, uh, David uh, is still loyal to Israel, uh, but he just doesn't trust Saul. And so um, this is what's gonna keep us reading here. And here we go, uh, verse three. So they're marching and David and his army is with the Philistine army. And the king is like, hey, this is great. All the officers not having it. They say, what about these Hebrews? They're like, why in the world are there Israelites marching with us against Israelites? And so Achish replied, is this not David who was an officer of Saul and king of Israel? He has already been with me for over a year and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. Verse four, but the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, send the man back and he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain by the thousands and David his tens of thousands. So they know the songs of David and his conquer, his you know conquest against them, and um, Achish was totally blind to it. But here's what we know: David was not going to fight against his own people. The Philistine officers knew that. They realized it. They knocked some sense into the king. They're like, "Hey, why are we bringing this guy who's known for like you know conquering us, basically?" So then um, David and his men go home. And the next few verses, I'll just summarize. David's not happy. We don't know what his plan was. So you're probably thinking here, what is David's plan? Like, what's the end game for David in this situation? We know David's not happy, so he wanted to go, but it doesn't say, it's not recorded. What we do know is that, uh, well, he probably didn't wanna take out Saul because he had two chances to do that previously and never did. And then, <clears throat> um, also, I mean, he could, he could have planned, he would, maybe this is like a long undercover situation and he's just waiting for the right time to strike against the Philistine king or he's just, you know, hiding from Saul. But here's what we learn from these verses specifically is that um, if, David, if David goes through with his plan, he is uh, gonna get, you know, let's say he goes into battle. He's gonna be uh, turning on the Philistines. The Philistines will take him out as we will see in the following verses or then he you know, would have to basically go along with the Philistine army and go against his own people. And so uh, David, you know, God had saw everything, you know, used the, um, you know, 
the suspicion of the Philistine commanders to save David from that situation, from that moral dilemma. And so then David goes home, he's not there. Now we're gonna see what happens in the battle. First Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malachishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me but his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. We'll just end right there. You guys are like, what? Okay, Uh, oof, okay, wow. So um, Saul, tragic, tragic ending to his story. He's surrounded by enemies on all sides and we see this very tragic ending to Saul's story. Now, we as the readers are forced to um, face the question of what do we make of Saul's story? Back when Israel cried out for a king, when we were introduced to Saul, this tall, handsome, strong king, this like, you know, idealistic, you know, looking king who's then anointed by God, he starts off strong, he had everything going for him. But as he gained power and influence, it started to expose his character that was underneath. And over the years, Saul had turned away from God and he grew bitter and angry. Saul ended up not being a very good king and he had these deep character flaws that he never fully dealt with or was willing to surrender to God. And so now I'm gonna pause and we're gonna look and compare and contrast both Saul and David's um, journeys and stories here. And there's two um, things that I want to point out about uh, how how we're gonna compare and contrast them. And the first one is how they viewed themselves. And we're gonna look at Saul first. So Saul had deceived himself. Saul was unaware of his own flaws and failures. So not only was Saul, did he have flaws and he had failures, he didn't know it. He was unaware. He didn't have a realistic understanding of himself, how his actions impacted other people. He downplayed his role in the bad decisions that he made. He would blame other people and have them take responsibilities for his mistakes. And in the book, Leadership and Self-Deception, which is a great book, describes self-deception like this. Self-deception blinds us to the true causes of problems. And once we're blind, all the solutions we can think of will actually make matters worse. Whether at home, whether at work or at home, self-deception obscures the truth about ourselves corrupts our view of others and our circumstances and inhibits our ability to make wise and helpful decisions. When we are disconnected from who we are on the inside and who we are on the outside and there's this disconnect, 
And we are deceiving ourselves about who we are and what's really going on the inside and, and what our flaws are and our shortcomings are and all that stuff. It distorts our entire reality. And as leaders, that is so dangerous. Whatever um, influence and roles God has entrusted to you in your life, that is so dangerous to be caught up in self-deception where our entire reality is distorted. And we are unaware of what's going on. We're blind to it. We can make matters worse with things we think are solutions, but they're not. And it obscures the truth about ourselves. It corrupts our views of others and inhibits our abilities to make wise decisions. Self-deception leads us to having unrealistic expectations. So Saul expected others to see past his flaws, yet he was quick to point out other people's flaws. When we are unaware of our own flaws and shortcomings or we choose to ignore them, then it can lead us to having these unrealistic expectations of other people. Some more examples. We can expect, maybe it's like, I expect other people or these people to be there for me, even though I'm not always there for them. We expect people to reach out to us, yet we're not reaching out to them. We expect people to love us on our own terms, to, to be able to, to wanna do things for us and all that stuff, but yet we don't seek to understand and love someone the way that they wanna be loved. Or we expect people to not bail and be flaky, yet we can, be, we can bail and be flaky. Or an example that we see in our society all the time, that there is this unrealistic expectation. It's like this unwritten thing, you're trying to figure it out, how you ought to live, how you ought to behave and speak, who to align with, who to not align with. And when somebody trips up, when somebody fails, people are there ready to tear them down, to take everything from them. There's no mercy, there's no forgiveness, there's no process or path for possible atonement or redemption. And it's not that I'm not about accountability, but what is, what is that without love, right? What, is, what does scripture tell us? What is, what is that without love? What is that, that without grace? What is that without forgiveness? So self-deception is dangerous. It's harmful to other people. It causes us to poorly steward the power and influence that God has entrusted us with. And although Saul dealt with self-deception, David was very much in touch with his own shortcomings and flaws. So it's not that David was perfect and Saul was not. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how David was very in touch with the fact that he wasn't perfect, that he didn't have it all together. He was in tune with his identity, with his emotions, with his strengths, with his weaknesses. David had a consistency between his inner life and his outer life. And in Psalms, we get the biggest glimpse into David's heart. David wrote all these Psalms and we see into his inner character and how he was feeling and how he wrestled with things. David was so consistent from the inside to the outside. He did commit murder and then he wrote a Psalm about it. It's in the Bible. Like, you're like, whoa, that's messed up. But David is true. David is like, yeah, I've made big time mistakes. I've made big time failures. Yet he is true. He is consistent. He brings it all before God. He says, man, I am nothing. Man, God, I need you. 
unlike Saul, Saul had no idea. He was oblivious and blind to his shortcomings and failures. In order to write about a, a psalm about one of your failures, you have to be aware that, that it exists. So David had an open heart and posture towards God. He was in touch with this reality that we all, this side of heaven, are a mixture of good and bad. That even the best of us have flaws. We all are a mixture of life and death, of healing and hurt, of good and bad. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said it like this. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. David's self-awareness, his identity and faith in God, knowing his strengths and weaknesses, knowing at the end of the day that he is not all that, that he is not better than anybody else, it gives him a capacity to show mercy, to extend grace, to love his enemies. Whereas self-deception, it, it blinds us. It blinds us in the ways that we are hurting and wounding others. It blinds us in the ways that we are exploiting others for our own selfish gain. If you um, had the chance to listen to a sermon last week, you remember that Rod talked about this scene with um, David and Saul. And David, this is the second time, he extends radical grace, the absurdity of this grace um, and forgiveness to Saul. And, and we see that on display from David in his heart. But here now, David, um, Saul is gone. Saul has passed. And now in 2 Samuel chapter one, we see David take his forgiveness and his love towards Saul, his enemy, another step further. David writes a poem, a lament, to be taught publicly to the nation to help Israel mourn the loss of Saul and his sons. And in his lament, as you would expect, David honors Jonathan, his best friend. Jonathan was his best friend, but he does this countercultural thing. He also honors Saul. Saul, the enemy who, who drove him out of his home and had him on the run for years trying to kill him, his enemy Saul, he honors him with this lament to the nation of Israel. And here's part of his lament in chapter one. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, and they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. David had every reason to hate Saul, but he chose not to. David had forgiven Saul of that debt, yes, but here is an amazing example of what happens after we forgive. What does after forgiveness look like? It looks like this. David is able to celebrate and honor Saul. That David, out of no ulterior motive, nothing at all, out of the love that he has for God and for Saul, he is able to celebrate the good parts of Saul. He chose to look at the good that Saul had done. And that takes so much courage to lay aside hatred, to lay aside hurt, 
and to respect the positive side of someone else, especially an enemy. And how many times are we often faced with that in our world, in our society? Um, One example, if we just look into our families, that no matter how good of parents that you've had or how good of parents you are, all parents wound their children. And those wounds, they, they get carried into life and adulthood. And if we, when we become adults, are not able to work through and process and forgive the ways that our parents have wounded us. Um, maybe we're not even aware of the way that they've wounded us, but we become aware of that. If we do not forgive, then we will never be able to truly celebrate and honor the good parts of who they are. No matter how, no matter how many good things you think there are or how, how little, um, that no matter who your parents are, that we can celebrate the good parts of our parents' legacy when we are able to extend forgiveness in our hearts for the ways that they've wounded us. And that's just one example. You can apply this to workplaces when there's transitions and positions and you know people leave and then you're like, well, everyone talks bad about these people when they leave, right? And it's like, what? <laughs> How is that? That's not loving, that's not, for, that's not forgiving, that's not um, what we see in David, that David had all the power He had the whole attention of Israel to just shame Saul's legacy. But instead, he chooses to lift up Saul's, the the good parts of Saul's legacy. It's totally countercultural. And the thing is, is when when we are not in touch with our own selves, with our own flaws and shortcomings, with our own failures, we can live in this distorted reality where we have this unrealistic expectations of others. And so that, that then when we experience the hurt and the pain, all we'd wanna do is focus on the negatives. All we wanna do is focus on, on how evil they are. And even if we don't say it out loud, subconsciously how evil we're not, how good we are, how evil they are, how, how good we are. But when we view ourselves in light of God and the gospel, like David, we gain an understanding of who we are and who we aren't. We gain a capacity to grow in mercy, to grow in listening, to grow in seeking to understand, to grow in empathy. Knowing ourselves actually allows us to show empathy to others. When we really listen um, and seek to understand even our enemy and how they became who they are, what is their story? we are able to love them. And we're able to do radical acts of love, like honor them, like celebrating the good parts of people's legacies, even when they have wronged us. As we journey through life, and God gives us this power and influence to steward, and we are in different roles and different abilities to influence people, um, as we go by year after year, um, and the longer we've lived, the more opportunities that there have been for people to wound us, more opportunities for people to have wronged us in some way. And over time, um, we can become angry and bitter and cynical, more life that we live and experience. Or if we... Um, are willing to 
to allow God to, as David says, David says this in Psalm 139, he says, search my heart, God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. That over time, we have more opportunities to experience grace and forgiveness. We have more opportunities to love and serve others and grow in deeper trust in God because the more experiences we have where God has been faithful, that we grow in deeper trust in him. And then actually, as we get older, we grow in love and warmth. We start to see what really matters in life and what God has really called us to be able to block out the, the, the many things in society that they try to um, put in our lives and, and try to fill that hole that only God can fill. And um, this, this makes me think of um, one of my grandmas, uh, called her Mama. She passed away a few years ago. Um, and man, was she a man of, uh, a woman of God. She loved Jesus. And um, she didn't just proclaim that she loved Jesus um, and, and dwell in his word, um, but she, she fed the hungry out of her home. She um, uh, cared for uh, children in foster care who had um, kids, with, kids with disabilities. She became a special ed teacher to um, love on the, the marginalized and sometimes the forgotten in schools. And my grandma, to her last days was warm, was loving, um, and to me was the embodiment of Christ. Um, not just to the family, but to people who could never thank her, who could never repay her. And, um, and that is the power of um, when like Saul, we, we never come to grips with our flaws and our shortcomings. We never come to grips with the fact that we're broken. We fail no matter how hard we try, and we need God, we need Jesus. David knew that. David was chased after God with everything that he was, no matter how many times he failed, no matter how many mistakes he made. And he was loving, he extended grace, he was merciful. He was the same person in every area of life. That's the first thing. The way that David and Saul viewed themselves drastically impacted how they either leveraged the power that God gave them for good or for evil. The second thing is that um, Saul was more focused on the status, rather, rather his status rather than the substance of his character. So the disconnect between our outer and inner life Yes, Saul had that, he had a disconnect there, but he also focused more on the outside than the inside. Saul cared way more about what other people thought of him. He focused way more on his title, on his status, focused on keeping any kind of control that he could to, do any, to, to eliminate any kind of threat that might take away his power. He was insecure, he was disobedient to God because he believed that his way was better. Sometimes we can be after status. We can do everything, we wanna do everything in our power to hold on to the power and influence that we have. 
that when we feel it start to slip away, we will start to compromise our faith and who we are to hold on to it. And depending on your social, our socioeconomic background, there could be different things in our life that we perceive as like the desired status symbol that is like the pinnacle of, of who we wanna be and what we wanna be about, whether it's what college we go to or, or the, the number in our bank account or the house we have, how many followers we have online. You know, in a recent survey, um, Generation Z, it's about Generation Z and they're answering the question, uh, who do you wanna be, what do you wanna be when you grow up? And the number one answer was to be an influencer online, to be an online influencer. When generations before it was, you know, astronaut, it was, you know, whatever, right? But it is influencer that the next generation, that our society, we want power, we want influence, we wanna be famous, we want people to know us, or at least this semblance of what we portray on the outside that we post online, we can filter, be whoever we want, right? This reminds us that um, the focus on um, our inner substance versus uh, our outer status is so countercultural. It's so countercultural, and, and the things that society and the world want to feed us is, is how we can change and, and manipulate and modify the outside to achieve some kind of empty outcome. But what we see here in David, as we're about to read, what we really desire, what we really crave, is the inner substance of our character, of life with God. Here we read chapter two of 2 Samuel. David is finally free to go home. David has been on the run from Saul for years, for over a decade. And here is, we read what happens. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So God directs David to go home. Saul is gone, and so David's exile is over. And can you imagine how David felt? What it must have been like, the, how he was like, man, I'm dreaming, what is going on? I get to go home. And when, when God says the words, go up, it's pointing to the fact that David's home is like geographically elevated. And so God just tells David, go up, go up. And David knew that that was home. So David took his family home. And then in verse four, we see that the men of Judah, the men of his hometown tribe came to Hebron and they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. So David and the men and the women and the children, they all come home to settle in Israel. And the men come to David and anoint him king. And earlier in 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel the prophet anoints David, but it's a private um, anointing. It wasn't public. Nobody, um, nobody but a few knew that David would become king. But this is the first public affirmation, the first public anointing of David being king. And the main thing to point out here is David's patience. 
After all this time of waiting, after all these years of trusting that God would take care of Saul, David's anointing is finally being fulfilled. David never sought his own promotion. He didn't desire the status. All he cared about was loving and serving God. And and in the midst of his waiting for this, this future that God had promised, he just served. He just was himself. He just loved God. He was patient. He waited on God's timing. He didn't force things to happen in his timing. And in the Psalms and throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, we just see how David is consistent. Through the years of waiting, through the years when he was king, through the years when things are going great or when they're not, David praises. David laments. David gives it all to God. David gave every victory to God. David gave God all the credit. David went from a shepherd boy who was watching sheep. He defeated Goliath, became king. You don't think he had something to boast about, to take credit for? And not once do we see David say how great he is. Not one time, publicly, privately, in the the Psalms that we see in scripture, Even in his own heart, he is giving the praise to God. He continually refers to himself as a servant. David knows himself. He knows the God of the universe intimately. David, um, not because he thought he was better than everyone, but because he knows that he isn't. He knows that he's not better than anyone else. And that's why he can be so loving and so free and walk in this this freedom. This um, overarching theme that we see in um, 1 and 2 Samuel is that God uses the humble and the meek to accomplish his mission. That God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. That's what Jesus says here in Matthew 23. Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's not a command. That's just a statement of reality. Or in Matthew 16, when Jesus um, says to disciples and, and those who are around, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, You must deny yourselves, you must humble yourselves and take up your cross and follow me. David took on and lived the role of a servant. Both on the inside and the outside, he saw himself as a servant. And Jesus calls us, all those who wish to follow him, to take on the role of a servant. And sometimes we might be tempted to say, man, I got that. I got it, I just need to be humble and take up my cross and follow Jesus. But what does that actually look like when we live out what we claim to believe about our faith? You know, nothing is more humbling that um, when we take on the role of a servant and then somebody treats you like a servant and you go, whoa, I'm more than that. I'm more than a servant. And you kind of get offended. And it's like, well, you were serving, but then... What happened? Sometimes, if this is true, it's a test, right? That our, our, we're exposed. 
that maybe we were actually serving for some other reason, for, for a reputation, so we looked better on the outside for some kind of um, ego thing, right? But no, we take on the role of the servant and we're okay being treated like a servant. Why? Why are we okay with that? Because when, when we take on um, the role of a servant, it is the ultimate expression of love. It's self-giving. It's the giving of ourselves to someone else, usually without anything in return. It's not for a reward or for a status. The reward of serving is serving. The reward of serving is being transformed into the man or woman that God has called you to be. That God has created us and called us to be made into the likeness of Jesus. Jesus was a servant. Jesus was the God of the universe who humbled himself and became a servant for us. The very savior that we follow had all the power in the world and became nothing and was treated like nothing. Yet, he endured it all so that we might experience abundant life in his name. David's humility points to Jesus's humility. Close with this passage out of Philippians where Paul is um, talking about what Jesus says in, in Matthew 23. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that, the name of Jesus, that every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Jesus took on the role of a servant. David's humility, David's heart pointed to Jesus, the real David. That Jesus had all the power, yet he took the low road. He gave up control. He gave up the power in order to uh, free us from death and sin and brokenness so that by believing in him, we can experience freedom. We can experience abundant life. God is building this kingdom that will never end. He is advancing his redemptive work here right now in our midst. He is seeking to bring heaven down to earth in every area of life, every area of culture, every relationship. And God wants to partner with us. He invites us to join him in that work. But we first must be willing to take on the role of a servant, to humble ourselves, say, God, 
search my heart. As David said in Psalm 139, search my heart, God. Find anything in me that is not of you, God. And God, take that from me. May our prayer be that, um, that we surrender our control, that we lay, are willing to lay down our power, lay down our status, lay down everything that we are, might be afraid to lose. And know that God is true. He is faithful. And in our weakness, he is made strong. So maybe today for you, it's however you feel like God is working in your heart today to just pray in your heart. You wanna surrender to God to say, search me, God. Know my heart. God, take away anything in me that is not of you. Or maybe today you, you, just, you, want, you feel like you wanna make the decision to focus not on the outside, not on the status, not on what other people think, not on what our world and culture says matters in appearance, but to focus on who we're becoming, who we're becoming. That as we go more and more in life, that we become more loving, that we become more merciful, that we become more grace-filled, that we become warm. Jesus was so warm and loving. May we, as we walk with him and journey with him and surrender with him, be made more and more into his likeness, into the embodiment of love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, um, God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for being a God who was willing to enter into our broken and sinful world. God, that you entered into our death, that through Jesus, you became nothing. You had all the power, yet you laid it down and endured the suffering on the cross for us. So God, may we come to know our true selves and know that we are loved by you no matter what. May we be in tune with our true selves, God. May we be consistent with who we are on the inside and the outside. May we grow more and more into your likeness. May we be your light in this world, God, to love, to act justly, to, to show mercy to people, God. We can only do it through you, God, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, God. So we surrender to you. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.